Good morning, and thanks for joining us in this chilly building. Um, it's warming up. It was 40 degrees when I got here at 8 o'clock, and um, we've got it warming. I think it's probably around 40 or around 50 degrees now. So the boiler had just ran out of water, and the system was completely dry. So, you know, it's a little bit... You got to watch those things, I guess. When the weather gets really cold, you got to make sure that it doesn't, doesn't get dry. So uh, turn in your Bibles to the uh, book of James. And we're going to continue through that through our series today. If you're using the Pew Bibles, the black Bibles in front of you, it's page 1012. And I'm going to read a little bit more than our text for this morning, which is James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. And I'm going to start at the beginning of chapter 2 because these two sections, they just kind of go together. It starts at verse 1 and it goes right on into verse 13. So follow along with me starting at, at verse 1, and, but we're going to be focusing specifically on 8 through 13. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, st- you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For one who keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So you've probably heard it said many times in many ways by many different people, at least I have, to love your neighbor as yourself. In my estimation and my experience in life, I would say this is probably one of the most widely accepted parts, script, uh, pieces of Scripture in our regular culture, and also one of the most misunderstood It is the deepest longing of the human heart to be loved deeply, completely, purely, and also to love, isn't it? We really, down at the core, I believe, we have this feeling that we want to sacrifice and we want others to sacrifice for us, but we can't quite get there. There's something sort of holding us back, sort of like this invisible mesh that's sort of there. And we, we have these desires, we have these longings, 
but we can't quite get there. And I think I, I'm saying this right, that I have seen this concept mistreated really poorly in, in our culture. I've heard it said many times growing up, this was often said to me, don't be mean to your sisters, you, you don't want them to be mean to you. Or, you know, in, in, our, in our modern culture, we, we see this kind of this similar uh, idea in almost every, seems like every socioeconomic um, movement to treat people fairly. Let's be treated with equality. Be treated as you want to be treated. We see it in our, our workplace. We see it out on the streets. We see it in our homes. We see it in our churches, even. But I feel like down underneath of that is this empty man-centered misunderstanding of the concept to love your neighbor as yourself. But I do think that somewhere underneath of that, there is this whisper of this command that we see throughout all of Scripture. We see way back in the Old Testament even. We're going to get to that. But I think what happens is it's gotten all kind of twisted up and messy with a huge mixture of emotions and sin and and all kinds of things because in the middle of this longing and this desire that we have, we have so much sinful partiality. I think that's where it gets twisted and mixed up. And it turns this, this beautiful command into um, this very man-centered, legalistic judgment call on others because they're not doing what we think they should be doing to love us and how we perceive the love that we think we need in order to feel good, right? But I do think there is a seed of the truth of this passage in behind all of those things. And that's what I want to help us to un- uncover today in this, in this short, concise passage from James. So I think what's going on in this passage, I think what we're going to see here, ultimately is we have freedom to love and be loved. But I think our sinful partiality keeps us from truly loving. But in Jesus, we're free to give endless mercy instead of judgment. We are free to give endless mercy instead of judgment. Now, like I said, we're in the middle of this series of James. And everything that has kind of come before this, as we've seen throughout the book, is James is really hammering home this concept of, of how we treat one another. Now, this is primarily in the church, but it extends outside of the church. It's meant to be extended outside of the church by us. This is where we see this extending an arm of mercy to the world around us. Caleb preached a couple weeks ago, right uh, before this section in verses 1 through 7, on the, how you treat a rich man versus a poor man. That is really specifically probably intended more for inside of the church, but I think what we're going to see here today is something that's going to go beyond the church. It's going to be start here, but it's going to go beyond. It's going to extend into every area of our life. So I think what we, we see starting there in verse 8 is that we are longing for love. You see, this royal law, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. This is not a, this is not a brand new thing. It's not a new concept because back in the Old Testament... God speaking to Moses, giving him the law, says in Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18, he says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against a son of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, is what he says. 
And then he gives this command with a long list of many, many, many other commands that kind of go along with this theme of love your neighbor as yourself. And, I, and this is why I say, I think this gets at the core of our, of our deepest heart's longing, because even though it's something we want, we really don't know how to do it. And so that's why God had to give these commands to the Israelites back in the Old Testament, because they, re, they really didn't know how to do that. They didn't, didn't really know how to live in community very well. And when, that, when these things aren't followed, what happens is the, the community begins to erode when we stop treating each other as we're meant to. And that's exactly what happened in Israel. It's exactly what happens in community over and over again as we begin to stop following that basic cultural understanding of loving one another as we must. What happens is it just erodes the relationships and it just destroys trust and love. As, as C.S. Lewis puts it, to truly love is to be vulnerable. And that might be for a lot of us, what we're so afraid of in this command is to really open ourselves up and to, to love as we're meant to be, to be loved. We need to, but we need to look a little bit further at what this is actually saying to us. So yes, it's a command to, to love our neighbor as ourselves, but the way he's saying this, he's saying, if you really fulfill this royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So remember, he just dealt with the sin of partiality in the churches of how, how to treat a you know, poor man versus a rich man. Well, he's saying, if you do that, you're doing well. Remember, he's speaking to Jews in this, in this region uh, that, he, that, that he's talking to who are very, very familiar with this royal law because growing up as, as Jews, they would understand that they would understand these commands really well, is basically what I'm saying. And they would also understand that they were meant to um, be living in this, this new community that Christ had, had, had almost uh, renewed for them. Okay, And so this is how we see Jesus restating this law as he's being addressed by the scribes and the Pharisees. He's saying that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the greatest and first commandment, and that the second that's like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. So, I think James is following Jesus' pattern here that in order to be, in order to disciple, and in order to be discipled, you have to first understand. We obviously have to love God, but we have to love one another. We have to understand what it is to be loved and how to love. So I think that's why he he starts right here and he brings up the idea of of this love your neighbor as yourself because everything that's come before we got to remember all the context that came before it and all the things that he's been hammering out ahead of time. So. All right, so let's move forward. So we see that we, we want to be loved and that we really do want to love others, but we have a hard time with that. We don't really understand that so well. So why do we fall so short? Well, I think James is going to... So let's just keep moving on. I think the reason we get this wrong right here in this passage is that 
as we see in verses 9 through 11, is that we really are a corrupt community. And it's kind of a summary statement of, I think, what's going on. He's saying, he's saying so remember, he said, if you really fulfill the royal law, you know, then you're doing well. But he says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law's transgressors. So this but statement that he gives is like this, again, an Old Testament maxim that, these, that, that his original audience would have understood really well. We kind of miss sometimes, unless you study and understand the Old Testament, that in order to obey the law, you had to obey the law to the completeness of it. So what he's saying here is that it, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. So then he goes on to say, if you fail at one point, you fail at all. And as any ancient law system in those times, when a king made a law, it was a permanent statement that could not be broken. So just like with the law of, of the Old Testament law, this could not be changed. It cannot be broken. And failure at one point of any part of the law meant you transgressed the whole law. Not like today, if you break the law on speeding and Caleb pulls you over and you get a ticket for speeding, you've just gotten a fine for that one thing. You haven't broken the entire legal system. You've just broken one law. But what James is saying here is much, much heavier, much, much weightier. And I want us to understand the weight of that because we do it too. It's not just the thing that um, that the Old Testament Jews had to deal with, he's using this statement as, a, as an example uh, for us to see uh, why when we sin in our partiality, that is then breaking the entire law uh, that, God has, that God has placed upon his people. Now, as an example, okay, we're going to get to what that means for us here today, but James's audience, in, in, in the context, they, they really understood. They understood this really well. They, were, they practiced animal sacrifice as a prescribed way by God, again, by, by this law, to receive the forgiveness for breaking the law. And they, would, they even knew, and please, you know, this is actually uh, my encouragement to go back and read through the Old Testament because you'll see in many different places, they even knew that the sacrifice of a thousand bulls would not cover, the blood of a, of a thousand sacrifices of bulls could not cover the sin uh, that they, they felt so much. But this is just an illustration of the sin of partiality that he's talking about here. And so, but, but what does that mean? What is it, okay, you're asking yourself, okay, what does it mean to be partial? Because he, he's, he's used the word partiality. Now, I'm not talking about the differences that we have in opinion or, you know, uh, I like, you know, I have, I have preferences in food and, and automobiles and architecture and clothing and hairstyles. That's not the kind of preferences he's talking about here. It's a different kind of partiality. It, it actually means to favor someone over someone else because of some type of external circumstance. The way they look and the way you might feel around them. Remember this Remember, he had just talked about the way that you might favor a rich man over a poor man who comes into your assembly. 
Um, but in our culture today, I, be, I really believe we, we, need to, we need to watch out for this because we're really prone today, I think, to pick and choose whatever kind of part of culture that fits us and we gravitate towards it. And that's where we feel comfortable at and we prefer those people over, over other people. We were just talking about this last night of the different generations that we, that we have and how different each of them are. And it, we, seem to, we seem to kind of gravitate towards whatever, whatever makes us comfortable, and those are the things that we prefer. And I realize I might be getting myself into a sticky mess with some of you saying, well, why, why can't I have friends that I feel comfortable around? And that's not what I'm saying here, but what I'm saying is that who do you prefer and why do you prefer them? What are we wanting out of that relationship? Okay. Um, I do believe that I, I, see, I see James talking about this in a way now that if we are showing partiality to any one group over another, we're getting ourselves into a, a sticky situation. So I think we have to ask ourselves, who does God prefer? Does he prefer the rich or the poor? Does he re- prefer the powerful or the weak? Well, I think... It's good for us, again, a, a, an encouragement to go back and read Scripture and see what God prefers. I think he, what we see is that we take a look, we'll see that God uses many, many times over and over. He uses the weak, He uses the humble, He uses the poor. We just celebrated Christmas, and if you read the Christmas story, you'll see um, um, the amazing imagery in the book of Luke. Who, does, who do the angels go to to announce the birth of Jesus. He goes to these, you know, these, these shepherds out in the field at night. He doesn't go into Jerusalem and go right to the temple or to the king. He announces it to the poor and weak and destitute of their culture. Sometimes he goes to the most humble of circumstances. You know, Jesus was born into a poor carpenter's family in a little village in a barn. <laughs> I read this in verse 5. It says, let me read it. He said, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? God goes where he knows that the hearts are rich in faith. And James is saying here that if we don't love others because of what's down in the heart, for only loving because of these outward you know, appearances, we are sinning in partiality. And we cannot keep this law on our own. This is why I said earlier, we seem to have this desire almost inside of us, but we just we can't figure out how to at least I can't. This is the best way I can explain this, is that we can't quite figure out how to just break free of this mesh of, of whatever's holding us back from really truly loving and, and showing impartiality. It's because we can't do it on our own. On our own, we are, we are in a sticky mess. And this is where we get the good news of the gospel in this, me- in this text that's right here in us, in the in the next section. So we're going to move on into the law of liberty, verses 12 through 13. 
So James, he gives us the problem. He kind of sets up the scene, and then he shows us what's wrong, and then, but then he gives us the answer right after it, right, right, in, this, right in, in this little section. He says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Well, we've already seen that we cannot obey and that we don't deserve to really be loved. And that love is the greatest desire of our heart, but that we have sinned against God by not loving as we should. We sin against this holy and righteous God of the universe. But he has provided a way for us to be reconciled through Jesus. And it's by him alone that we have this freedom, this law of liberty. That's what this, that's what this law of liberty is. It's this freedom to be liberated from this constraint that we have within ourselves, which is sin, to be let loose with his spirit to love as we must, to love as we should. You know, James goes on to say in verse 4 that we're going to learn later on, he says, there is only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We are not the judges. What this passage is calling us to is to extend a hand of mercy to the world around us and not, to not judge them. And guys, I realize how hard this is for us. As we look around us in culture and we see, why are people making the decisions they're making? You know, why is my, you know, my sister doing the things that I don't approve of? So it's hard for us. We do judge situations. And I'm not saying to naively just go out in the world and not think about what's happening around us. We have to do that, okay? We have to teach our children of, of the dangers of the world around us. But we have to extend an arm of mercy. Because we have been extended an arm of mercy, mercy eternally beyond what we can even possibly do. And this arm of mercy is in Jesus. And it's the freedom to let go of the cultural prescriptions that are, we feel are upon us to act a certain way, to look a certain way, to talk to the right people, to get into the right crowd. Look, I went through high school. <laughs> I remember what that was like. And it has probably taken me the next 20 years of my life to unlearn everything that I learned that I was supposed to do to get to where I was supposed to be to be successful, to look right, for people to receive me because I want to be loved. I want people to like me. And you guys do too. I know it. But we have to be willing to cross the dividing line between us and others. To truly love and to truly actually go where it's uncomfortable. So when I first became a Christian, I was an adult. I came to, Christian, I came, I came to faith as an adult. And I very quickly started to um, kind of, I guess, in a sense, feel these chains fall off of me. Because like I said, I, I, was, I felt so bound up by this desire to, to, you know, to prove how good I was and to make people like me because of my, because uh, just how hard I tried, you know. And I started looking around where we lived, and I, and I saw a lot of homeless people. And I began to approach them, and I began to, to just kind of befriend some of these people. And there was this one one particular situation where there was a homeless lady named Rose who I got to know really well and her, her friend that she lived with in a tent in the woods next to, behind this grocery store. And I started 
meeting with them on a regular basis. I gave them a bicycle, I think. I gave them, you know, things that, that they needed, just the basic stuff. And I just really started getting to know them. And I started getting down to the heart level, and I found out just how afraid these people are. They are scared to death. They look horrible. They stink, and they know it. And they are afraid to be around people who aren't like that. You guys, my heart broke for these people because they are living in the worst circumstances. I mean, probably not like what you might see in India, but almost because they were living in tents on dirt floors in the woods in an area that had sex trafficking. People were getting kidnapped. There, was, there, were, there were murders happening all the time. They were all addicted to substances, and every time you went around them, they were drunk. And these are the kind of people sometimes that I think we're called to reach out and give a hand of mercy. I'm not saying every one of you should do that, but you should be open to it. You should be open to opening a hand of mercy to people who, are, who, you, who you view as beneath you and may not be worth, worthy of, of speaking to. So I think those are the motivations of our heart that we have to look at here and, and decide, is it really worth being obedient to God's command? Because look at what it says next. He says in verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. See, I've had this conversation with with a few people that even though I feel less afraid than some of you to approach someone who's homeless and and in a really bad situation, I, I don't look at my life as somehow better than theirs. I feel like we're just a degree different than them. Maybe they've made a few different choices that have landed them into that situation and, okay, they are in a, maybe a bad situation, but we're really no different. We're all part of this, you know, the same community. We really are in the same community as some of these people that we see as beneath us. And we cannot continue to close our eyes to the needs of the world around us. And this does mean crossing these racial, economic, fashion, gender, you know, generational boundaries in order to extend this arm of mercy that I'm talking about. So our excuses for not doing this will not hold up. They will not hold up and stand on the judgment day when we're faced, what it says right here, by judgment, we're faced with the judgment of God who will be without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. So who are our neighbors? Who are they? Well, let's look at Jesus' answer from Luke 10. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to a place and saw him, he passed by on the the other side. These were Jewish men that just passed right by this guy who was beat up and left for dead. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring oil and wine. When he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to an innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think will be proved to be the man's neighbor? 
the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Your neighbor is anyone around you, anyone that you see or that you interact with, who you work with, you go to school with, your children, the people living in your home, your extended family. And maybe you know them really well, maybe you don't. Maybe they're a perfect stranger like Rose, who I met years ago living in the woods. And they are going to be different than you. You're probably going to feel uncomfortable around them. And you're going to feel like, how's this conversation going to go? What do I say in this situation? You'll feel uncomfortable and scared and worried. And you will feel incapable of the task at the time. And it will inconvenience you. And it will come at the worst time that you can imagine sometimes. You might be in a hurry to get someplace. But no one else has ever felt any different. It might just be the first time you experience this. These things never really feel great in the moment. But God will use these situations. And he will use the people in our lives around us. And he will work through us to bring those people to a better realization of who he is and possibly save some souls. I love that video we just watched about Lottie Moon because these people who are living in India, they have absolutely no idea who the name of Jesus is. They've never heard it. And they're worshiping water and, you know, burning their, their deceased on that water because they think that's how that they can have their, have their sins forgiven and, and they can go to heaven. There are people out there who need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And God uses the humble every day in the lives of people all around us. Even in this community, guys. We're not, we're not useless here. Even though this is a pretty normal little town, there's, there's things going on in this town. I have met people in this town who are at wit's end, who have no hope at all. And like I said earlier, I do have kind of a, a, a personal desire to go out and help um, homeless people. I, I've done it. And, and if anyone else has that desire, come see me. We'll talk about it because there's, there is a need here. I, I could share a lot more stories, but I know you guys are cold. And I don't want to keep you here forever. But what does this really mean? It means opening up this compartment of our heart that is horribly vulnerable, doesn't it? Because you might get turned down. Someone might say, I don't want your help. And that's okay. You don't have to force anyone to do something they don't want to do. C.S. Lewis once said, to love it all is to be vulnerable, to love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that cas- casket, safe and dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative 
to tragedy, or at least to risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Man, I love that statement. And you know what's funny about this is you never hear that last sentence. Every time you hear this statement quoted, you never hear that the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. You always hear the good stuff. Most people quoting this verse, they don't want to say that the danger of not loving is hell. Because when you lock your heart up so tight that you're not willing to open it up and be vulnerable, that's a pretty clear indication that our, that our love is not for anyone else but ourselves. So it says in verse 13, that for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Guys, this should put the fear of God in us. Because God is the judge who will judge us for our judgmental attitudes. This is why James uses the example of the rich man versus the poor man in his day. Because it was pretty obvious that there was a real drastic distinction in socioeconomic classes. You had poor and you had the rich, and the rich would oppress the poor. So why would you prefer the rich over the poor? Because they knew that if you preferred the rich, the powerful were going to take over. And, and you, you learn later on in James that they were oppressing the poor people. They weren't paying them at all for the, the wages that they deserved. They were keeping their wages. So that's why he had such, a, such an anger towards this particular situation. But I just see we're living in a different culture and a different age now where this is still applicable, but because... We just have so many different avenues for us to fit into our culture. It's easy to hide and say, this is where I feel comfortable. I'm really trying not to read culture into this passage, but I'm trying to open it up to help us to see that this really can apply to many different areas in different ways in our lives around us. For us, for as Christians, for those who call on the name of Jesus Christ, this is a distinctly, radically different way of living than, than the world around us. That's why it looks so different. That's why it might feel so hard for us. But you are free in the gospel to do this, to go to whoever you want to, to do this whenever you, you feel like you can. You are not locked down to it legalistically. Do not hear me saying that. We are not commanded to, to do what Travis does, to go out and talk to homeless people and to try to help them feel better about themselves. That's not what we're commanded to do. But you are commanded to do this within your circumstances of life, where, you, where you're called to. Talk about this this week if you're going to be meeting as a community group. Try to just hash this out and, and try to really ask, ask the Lord to reveal to you how am I being uh, partial in my life? Where am, where am I sort of locking my heart in and not being really willing to open up to the lives of those around me. It might be someone within our own church that you haven't visited with, you haven't talked to. This is the law of liberty. It's the law of Christ. And it gets lived out in community. It says in verse 13 that mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Another, another statement that I love so much is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred by the Nazis. He said, Let us thank God on our knees and declare, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. So, so it's, we get to live in community. We take this for granted that we get to live with one another. We, as is also inspired by C.S. Lewis, that we, we don't choose this, but we get to do this because God has blessed us with it. You know, I like, a lot, I like you guys, but I didn't necessarily choose you to be my friends. God chose us to be together, and we're commanded from Scripture to love and to be loved and to open ourselves up, open our hearts up, to be merciful and extend mercy and to allow people to be merciful to us. You know, I'll finish with this. Um, we are to seek the true north of God's word. Does, does anyone realize, some of you might realize, there's actually two norths. There's a true north and there's a magnetic north. I don't know if you guys wouldn't know that if you don't use compasses and you don't, haven't, haven't used them. But there's actually a magnetic north, which is uh, different than true north. And if you, if you just follow magnetic north, you'll never find the North Pole. You'll end up hundreds, maybe thousands of miles off course. And magnetic north changes all of the time based off what they call local uh, gravitational pull. I don't want to get into the technicalities of it, but it's really weird how it changes and it moves daily. So the gravitational north, or I'm sorry, magnetic north, it moves around 32 miles a year and it's about 300 and some miles away from the North Pole. So if you ever want to find the North Pole, you're not going to get there just by looking at the magnetic north of the compass. That's why compasses are designed um, for this problem. And really accurate compasses have to be calibrated all the time. So now, not only do you want to get to the North Pole, but you can't because of your magnetic compass is going the wrong direction. You're, ch you're, moving, you're chasing a moving target. Is it what it's like for us to be chasing the moving target of culture when we're trying to chase down what we see as preferential to us in the world around us? But what we have to do is recalibrate our hearts with the true north of God's word and spend our time with you know, studying this word and reading this word. And this is why I'm challenging my own community group. Let's read through the Bible this year. I, I try to do that every year. Um, or, you know, if I can't do it in a year, I'll do it as fast as I can because I think it's good for us to continue feeding ourselves what God is saying to us and understanding um, what do some of these things mean because if we don't understand them, we are not going to get the, we're not going to get to the North Pole. We're not going to be heading to the true north. We're not going to be living the way we're supposed to be living. We're not going to be headed in the direction that we're supposed to be heading as a church. We're not going to be preferring the things that God prefers. We're not going to be living in this freedom that we have been given in this law of liberty, the law of Christ. And I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying this is going to be you living your best life now, which is what the culture wants us to believe. But I am saying that you can be living in freedom you can, because you're going to be extending mercy and grace to those around you. So please, let us strive all together to reorient our heart's compass 
to true north, to put off the sinful partiality that keeps you from truly loving. Because in Jesus, we are free to give endless mercy instead of judgment. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, once again, we are thankful so much for the words that we hear in Scripture and for the correction that we receive and for the sin that I pray that, we have, that has been revealed in our hearts. God, don't just help us, help us not to just be left saddened or feeling empty or, or helpless. Lord, but we have been given freedom in Christ in this law of liberty. God, I pray that you would continue to just reveal that more and more to us as we go through this book of James and as we study our Bibles and as we meet together as, as believers. Father, work on our hearts. Take us to the true north of your word, of your holy word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.